thank you all for coming here tonight. Um, we're very privileged to have uh, the economic advisor to the President of South Sudan, Mr. Agri Tisa Sabuni, and to have Tim Allen, who's our own ID South Sudanese expert, uh, to chair this meeting. So we're really looking forward to um, hearing what uh, the economic advisor has to say to us and to hearing Tim's uh, reflections on it. So let me introduce uh, first Tim Allen to chair this talk and he'll take it from here. Um, and I would like to indicate that Tim is going to link us to another talk on South Sudan uh, that will be taking place in a few weeks time. Kate just asked me to go over there and told me when I start introducing it, I should say there's another talk on South Sudan mm -hmm. happening in two weeks' time. But she's already said that, but now we're going to see it behind me. There you go. No, that's not it. No. Nope. Where's this the other one? Okay, the other one is South Sudan's Emerging Foreign Policy. Okay. And that will be at the Wolfson Theatre, 25th October, uh, New Academic Building. Okay. okay, great. All right, well, it's nice to see quite a big audience here um, before the start of term. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome Mr. Agri Tisa Sabuni, um, who's an advisor to the president of Africa's newest nation, a, um, a nation that has faced acute difficulties um, in its first uh, period of independence. And I think he's going to be reflecting a bit on those issues. And he's particularly knowledgeable about the economic aspects, in, in particular, of course, the decision, perhaps a rather courageous decision, by the South Sudan government to stop producing oil. But I hope, too, we can have a more broad-based discussion. We've already had rather an interesting discussion in the green room upstairs about the politics of South Sudan and what it means to turn uh, that very large area uh, into, hopefully, a viable, cohesive nation-state. Um, so with no further ado, I'll um, hand over to you. And uh, are you going to speak for about, what, half an hour or a bit more? I'll stop about you if you go, to, okay. stop, stop if you go on for more than an hour, I'll stop you. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you to all of you for showing interest in South Sudan and for coming. Personally, I consider it a great privilege to be here and to speak to you about South Sudan in this prestigious institution, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, <clears throat> about 14 months ago, precisely on the 9th of July last year, that then sub-national entity of Sudan known as Southern Sudan attained full independence as a full sovereign nation. 
becoming UN member number 193, AU member number 54, and then joining a number of uh, regional and other international groupings and institutions, World Bank, African Development Bank, IMF, and so on. It was the culmination of a very, very long walk. A walk that started, to be precise, 193 years ago, in 1820. That, I, I feel I need to mention this to set the context in place. That was the precise time when a certain Muhammad Ali from Egypt in the employment of the then Ottoman Empire marched to the Sudan with the express mandate to procure three things. Gold, ivory, and slaves. And from then until the anti-slavery movement <coughs> took root and went to the Sudan, these three things were procured in huge quantities and set the tone and the tempo of resistance which culminated on the 9th of July last year. Um, in that kind of setting, uh, the resistance has been continuous throughout over the 193 years, but a period of civil conflict, civil war characterized the Sudanese nation on two occasions, from 1955 on the eve of Sudan becoming independent from the UK, from the co-dominion UK and Egypt, to 1972, when a brief period of 10 years ushered in some kind of tranquility and peace, only it turned out to be a temporary one, to restart again in, in 1982 and continued until the 9th of January 2005. Uh, tonight I would want to focus on the challenge of balancing South Sudan's short-term needs in terms of continuing to guarantee its security, as well as the provision of basic services like water, like health, like education, and the long-term needs for sustainable development. I will also try to find time to discuss with you about what it means to start building a nation from scratch or from zero level. Um, the South Sudan I'm going to talk about also, I would like to provide a proper setting for it because it is extremely important that we get it in context. Personally, I am a privileged individual. 
I should not be here. I should not have acquired the kind of education that would enable me to be here and conduct a discussion with you. I was singled out in my father's larger family to take care of animals. And because I was so good at it, I was not allowed to go to school. I sneaked and worked my way and was able to complete primary school, which made it possible for me during the first civil war I, I, I described earlier on to go to Uganda to pursue my secondary education. Fortunately, again, in a very prestigious school which the Ugandans themselves compete to go to. And one thing led to another one. I came back to the Sudan and proceeded to the University of Khartoum, which then, before what it became now, was also a very prestigious institution of high learning, beginning from the then Gordon Memorial College. I went there. To proceed again for my master's degree to the University of Glasgow. This is, I, I consider it a sheer coincidence because my compatriots, my fellow South Sudanese, never had that kind of luck. But I'm a product of the place. Um, unfortunately, the brief period of peace covering the period 1972 to 1982 did not last very long because the underlying causes for the resistance were still in place. And war broke out again, lasting for another 21, 22 years, which ended in early 2005. During the war, the first war, second war, there was no investment to talk about. Only destruction. Between four and a half to five million South Sudanese, this time around, the war was serious, got displaced, either internally or to northern Sudan or to the neighboring countries and even beyond. Roads were mined. What little investment that ever took place was destroyed. Um, South Sudan, ladies and gentlemen, is starting from scratch. And this gap, okay, let me step back a bit. Between 2005 and 2006, in the history of Sudan, in the history of the two Sudans, is referred to as the interim period, a period where peace prevailed in the Sudan as a whole. The two Sudans were not fighting each other, but they wanted to test that period as to whether they can continue to live together or not. 
that period came and went unfortunately very quickly or too quickly as some people would say um, <clears throat> uh, for all intents and purposes starting from scratch I would date it to the year 2005 forgetting or ignoring what happened earlier on The, one of the provisions in the peace protocol stipulates that once peace was attained, the affairs of the Sudan, including South Sudan, were to be conducted according to best international practices. That is a huge order, easily said than that because it masks a gap of a void, a gap characterized by no education, no infrastructure, no nothing that would indicate activities or programs meant for the welfare of the human being. That is what it means. In fact, right from 2005, <coughs> South Sudan found itself worse off than it was even in the brief period of 1972 uh, to 82. Because this conflict this time around created enormous destruction particularly in the South. A whole generation or two lost completely out without education, resulting in the current literacy rate of only 27%. For women, it's about 18%. For men, it's a little bit over 30%. But on average, the literacy rate is only 27%. Any investment that ever took place before 2005, of course, went. We can now agree that South Sudan is indeed coming from a very low base, but we must ask the question, what can we do? Rather than dwelling on the past, on a gloomy picture, what can we do now? What positive thing can South Sudan do? What positive thing can the international community help South Sudan do in order to forget about the past? And what does it mean to be a state? For some of us here, if we were asked individually to, 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 to indicate or to identify what it means to be a state, we could can count on quite a number of answers, as many may be as there are respondents. Some might say building a state means roads, connecting the country to itself with a network of roads. Some might say it means putting in place 
a proper and functioning legal framework. Some may say good educational facilities be provided to provide education. Others might say police, health, a sense of unity, or security for that matter, rule of law. Some may say economic development, growth in the economy. Some may say inclusive government through the practice of democratic governance. Some may say being internationally recognized. I believe that nation building or being a state, being a state means all of this and maybe many more. Now, choosing where to focus, meaning prioritization, given South Sudan's current setting, where everything is crying out there for attention, for action, whether in the educational sector, health, whatever you name it, there are all those programs that need to be identified for action. The question then is, what do you prioritize? Where, as many people put it, everything tends to become a priority in itself. That is the challenge. You need, however, to prioritize to one or two things at a time, because you cannot do everything at a go. So the process of building from conflict to peace, to me, involves three things, positive. Managing the short-term challenges, the humanitarian, the health, the educational. Planning for the longer term and managing the tension between the two, the short term and the long term. However, we must first, I think, balance these two tensions. The security issue, including setting up government structures and dealing with the humanitarian needs, and then the longer-term challenges. That is setting out a direction, a trajectory of travel. Within this process of state building, the short-term challenges include providing basic human, human, humanitarian services of the type we have mentioned earlier on, and key security concerns in order to maintain stability. There are also the long-term challenges. That is to develop a strategy that will include the provision of basic, <coughs> sorry, a strategy for economic growth, growth in the economy, a tall order, given in South Sudan's case, the, the, the almost total absence of the private sector. <coughs> that is the, in, which is the engine of growth. The sustainable provision of basic services and the development of a functioning government. These are the long-term uh, issues to grapple with side by side with the short-term one. In the short term, we have to choose security over education, 
Is it roads over health? Is it legal framework over the rule of law? In our setting, we had no police. If we had waited to develop the legal framework, the police law, it would have taken us the time it takes. Or do you get the soldiers, people who were trained to kill and defend themselves from being killed and make them to do police work? We had to do the latter. Make soldiers do police work. Now we're working backwards to take them for training, batch after batch, batch after batch, in order to match the legal framework. It is not possible to build everything at, at, at once. That's what I'm trying to labor. There are also the financial and the capacity constraints to contend with. Yet, if we were to choose correctly, if we choose incorrectly, I think we have lost the opportunity for generations to set the country on the right footing, right from the early stages. Determining the answers to these questions and implementing the answers, what the answers are to these problems, and implementing them, I think are two fundamental steps on the road, on the trajectory of South Sudan from conflict to nationhood. That is the path back from war. To progress from conflict to development, I think we must admit we need to manage this constant tension between the short-term needs and the long-term needs. These are definitely always conflicting. Managing this tension to implement this key government decision is a key, key government decision all around the issue of prioritization and mastering the required political way. How we answer these questions and implement the answers as a nation is a question of, 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 of leadership as well as technical uh, prioritization. I continuously refer to the issue of prioritization because this is the choice between conflicting needs. Fifty years of conflict have made it extremely difficult to plan anything more than a few days. So it is very hard to choose to focus on 50 years in a situation of conflict. It is difficult to, to make choices in the form of prioritization. A lack of a long-term vision complicates matters. But ladies and gentlemen, once you have peace, once you attain stability, you will still have tensions created by different groups who will be differing in terms of what the trajectory of the nation should look like. Everybody will have his own vision. 
the people of South Sudan themselves often have different, different opinions about the shape our country should take and the path it should follow. The international community, on their part, also has a vision for South Sudan. In the long, for the long term and the short term, our neighbors in the East African community, they also have thoughts and demands on us as South Sudanese. They have expectations as to how South Sudan should behave and conduct itself. We also, unfortunately, still have to normalize, South Sudan still has to normalize its relations with the Sudan. Thanks to what happened last week, that is a huge plus, and I think it will contribute <coughs> to enormous benefit for the people of the two Sudans. All of these issues take time, enormous amount of time. For time of politicians, technocrats, and in the process, the process of prioritization gets more and more complicated. Okay, we have prioritized what needs to be done first so that the others can be done later on. But then how do you go about implementing those things? The actual process of implementation, this again requires serious capacity, serious degree of coordination. It involves a set of government institutions to be in place, institutions that are capable. Ideally, you have the structures in place to deal with the short-term challenges as you plan for the long-term. In South Sudan today, we have experiences relating to both successes and failures. And of course, it is always the failures that end up in the press, which form people's opinions about the country, South Sudan. The successes that we will later on see what they are, and failures have definitely come from the competing tensions between the short-term and the long-term solutions to the problems. The successes and the failures constitute a kind of a mixed bag. We have succeeded in the following areas. First, we, we, we managed to have a clear focus and need. The international community helped us to attain that or to achieve that, define that. Both the internal security aspect has been contained and our relations with the Sudan are normalizing. We have managed also to institute government structures of a, that reflect a, a federal kind of uh, system. National, state, county, Payam, Boma. Boma being the 
the smallest unit of administration. Those are already in place. We consider it and we call it a success. That's why the country is holding together. Second, we have been able to dedicate human resources and capital to the maintenance and the implementation and operation of these structures. This is important because it helps to drive forward the process of positive change. Third, the economy and the supply sector have not been required to expand their capacity rapidly. Take the case in the education system where there were broadly a large number of teachers even during the war who were already in place regardless of their quality. We have only had to focus on, 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 on shifting them from the NGO supported uh, programs to government uh, pay. The same thing applies in the health sector. Although this has had some uh, complications uh, in that it was not as smoothly, the transition was not that smooth compared to that in the educational sector. Ladies and gentlemen, we have also failed and there has often been insufficient attention to our ultimate all game, all end goal or a lack of an objective that has been defined. Sometimes it has been a problem of conflicting ends. <coughs> yes, we have established a government and government structures. We have established the, the mechanism for, for the provision of basic services, but those services now need to be provided. There is general prevalence of security within the country itself. Um, the security aspects get a bit complicated. We have as a carryover from the peace agreement implementation, uh, there's this area in the border called ABA. It is not featured in the peace protocols that were signed last week. This one needs to be sorted out. Uh, there are problems to the north, west of us, uh, in the Darfur area merging with the Kordofan area with the spillover of refugees to South Sudan that creates problems for us in terms of security. You go to our border with the Sudan on the eastern side, the Blue Nile area, there's also a problem that way with the spillover. We need to develop cool heads with our, our friends in the Sudan in order to have a comprehensive solution to this. To arrive at what happened last week, we had to make compromises, and we believe those who are in place. We need to pay more attention to solving the failures rather than to 
shout or uh, talk about successes. The economy, uh, we do not have even the basic parameters about the economy. The IMF helped us last year to assess the size of the economy because it was intertwined with the rest of the Sudan. <coughs> we had no central bank. We never learned to, to, to run a central bank. The monetary aspects of it, the physical aspects of it were not part of the then sub-national entity of South Sudan. We had to start everything from the beginning. The economy ended up uh, contracting the, the Dutch disease due to its reliance on one single export commodity, and that's oil, generating up to 98% of its budget revenue and 100% of its foreign currency requirements. We need to do something about it. In the setting of total void in terms of capacity, in terms of institutions, in terms of legal framework, our beginning as a nation suffered. The weak institutions gave way to corruption. To take a simple example, especially the non-oil sector, from our border with Uganda, there's this town called Nimule and Juba, a distance of about 200 kilometers. We had something like 20-something revenue collectors along the way. And all the collection up until we went into austerity, serious measures following the, the shutdown in oil prices. What ended up collected and remitted to government coffers was not more than 2 million South Sudanese pounds a month. After those measures were put in place, it is now 60 million South Sudanese a month. And the potential is very huge. The, 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 the corruption aspect got in between. We have recognized it. We are fighting it head on. We have empowered our anti-corruption commission. We have empowered our audit chamber. The audit reports for the last four years uh, indicated uh, serious malpractices. As, as I speak, the Public Accounts Committee of Parliament is continuously calling heads of units to account for the discrepancies and the shortcomings discovered in their agencies. How much time do I have? You talked for about 40 minutes. So yeah. You talked for about 40 minutes. So okay. Yeah, one problem we, we, we still continue to have with everybody involved in the civil strife. The result was when peace was attained, practically nobody wanted to leave being in the army. So we are burdened with a very huge army. We don't need everybody to be there, but we do not have the packages to give to those who will opt to come out. That is a challenge necessitating unnecessary expenditure, diverting or depriving uh, programs that are aimed at growing the economy from 
being implemented. So limited growth. <clears throat> so I am balancing uh, the book, the failures as well as the successes. We need to, to make use of our resources in a better way. We need to uproot and deal with corruption head on. But the government is there. We cannot avoid it. We need to deal with the government. Only we must organize it in such a way that it delivers and it does what best international practices as stipulated in one of our protocols entails. We are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are appealing to the international community to stand by us as they have always done in a sustainable manner and also to stay the course. Currently, South Sudan is considered a risky uh, partner in terms of the use of donor money. As a result, donor funds are used outside the government budget in parallel. The good part of the good part of the story is that the donors identify with the programs identified by the government. But they implement the programs agreed upon with the government in their own way. We believe this needs to change. We believe sooner rather than later they should operate within the government system. I mean the accounting, the, 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 the procurement, those fiduciary practices if you avoid the government fiduciary practices, then the opportunity to learn, to create capacity, to inject capacity, will not be there, will be lost if you continue to operate outside. So we are asking our donors also to seriously engage with us in using our systems. Um, to conclude, I would want to say this. The path between conflict and development requires choices, serious choices and sometimes painful ones. And the prioritization of different programs. But before you can do this, we must also build a government that is capable of prioritizing <coughs> these programs and implementing them. We in the South Sudan are on a path away from war towards development. Development that's meant to cater for the welfare of its people. The turning, plan, turning plans into actions requires focused, simple objectives that have been 
or rather have the human capacity and physical capital behind them in order to realize them. They also require at the very minimum political will at the highest level. Ladies and gentlemen, South Sudan, I believe, has come a very long way. We still have a long way to go. But we have seen some successes, some very resounding, and we are learning from our mistakes. I look forward to the continuation of this process and the support of everyone, starting from you. Thank you very much. Now we've got, um, got quite a while for questions. I'll throw it open to the uh, floor in, in, in just a moment. When you ask a question, it would be very nice if you could actually ask a question rather than give a speech from the floor. Um, so questions, please. And um, could you also say who, who you are? Um, but just like while you're thinking, um, I... I, I can I ask the question that I suggested I was going to ask you when we were talking upstairs? I mean, I, I, lived in, I lived in South Sudan during that period before the war broke out. I lived in South Sudan for four years, from 1980 to 84. I saw the early part of the war, and I was researching in the border region as the war went on. And in much of that time, when I was living in South Sudan in, in the early 80s, I was teaching in schools, you know, including many people from um, where you come from in, 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 South, in South Sudan, from Kajukeji. Um, and I was able to travel all over South Sudan at that time. And what was very clear during that period were the divisions inside South Sudan, very acute divisions. <coughs> divisions, I think it's fair to say, between your people and um, the Bordinka people who dominate, some people would say, the current government. And I think it's reasonable to say that the collapse of regional autonomy, although perhaps one might agree it was sabotaged in the end from the north, um, that sabotage drew very easily upon divisions within the south. And I'm thinking, of course, about the the, the movement to redivide the South and the point at which Joseph James Tumbera seized control of the regional assembly, which in some ways was the trigger for the Boer mutiny. And then traveling around in South Sudan in, say, in 2009, where I had the opportunity to go all over the South again, I, ca I, I, counted, you know, I, I encountered very similar sorts of tensions. Um, uh, often the actual violence was to do with cattle, with groups, with guns but simmering resentment among your neighbours from where, near where you, where, where you come from, in, um, around Nimali, towards the Bordinka who were settled there, among the Zandi when I spent time there in 2006, sort of simmering tensions. And something that really worried me a great deal was that when I travelled around South Sudan in that period in the early 80s, I could speak to almost everybody in, in either English or in my very bad Arabic. In 2009, I couldn't. 
you know, I went into one place after another where people only were really able to speak their local language, which struck me as, you know, potentially a sort of a tinderbox, if you like, particularly as an aspect of creating the new state was the emphasis on the local, on the Payam system and developing local structures because that in some ways became, becomes in some places a, a if you like, an external recognition of local divisions. Um, so I wonder whether you could comment on, on some of these things. I know you have a very different perspective to my own, <laughs> but I mean, as, as somebody and many of these people in the room here, I mean, are great friends of South Sudan and would really want it to succeed. But certainly doing that work in 2009, I ended up with honestly rather a pessimistic view. I mean, almost everybody, m more than 60% of the people we interviewed during a very, in, in that period when we did a very big survey, reported having been attacked by their neighbors within the past 12 months. In other words, after the, the peace process. So how, how are you able to deal with that? And how are you, as, a, as somebody from Kajikaji, able to advise a government which I think probably some people from your own area of South Sudan would view as being dominated by another part of the South. Okay. Honestly, it's, it, it's difficult to answer what you have raised. For the simple reason, I'm being very, very honest here, for the simple reason that I personally believe some of your observations are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right now, take it from me, there is no tribal problem in South Sudan. I will qualify that. There is cattle theft taking place among cattle-owning communities. There's what we call cattle rustling taking place. But if you have no cow, I have nothing to do with you. Recently, we have one state, a huge state, which is mainly populated by five communities or tribes. It's called Jongole, where you find the Nuer of two types, Lao Nuer and Chikanyi Nuer. They steal cattle from each other. This we count, I counted count as one. You have the Dinka, you have the Murle, you have the Jie, and you have the, the Anyuak. The Anyuak used to suffer from the Murle because of cattle. When they gave up their cattle, now they have no cattle. They have no problem with the Murle. You are, only, you, 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 you are a problem because you have a cow. If you have no cow, you have no problem. Yeah. The Jie have no problem from the Murle, from the Dinka, from the, from the, from the Nuer, because they have also given up on the issue of cattle. So this cattle rustling, the, the, our people go all the way to Kenya to, to, to grab cattle from the Turkana. The communities in Kenya that have no cattle, we have no problem with them. They go to Uganda, to northern Uganda, to the Karamojo. It's the issue of cattle. You give up the cow, there's no problem. So uh, uh, the difficulty arises when I say there are no, uh, if it's the Nuer, the Murle, going to steal cattle from the Murle, from the Nuer, 
Now it will appear as if it is the Murle tribe against the Nuer tribe. But the thing is not that the Nuer, the Murle are going to fight the Nuer tribe. They are going to get cattle that they believe they must have. And the Nuer will not willingly give up his cows. So that, that, that's, that, in that context, yes, there is instability. That's what I referred to earlier on. But it's not tribal at all. The, again, you got it wrong when you attributed the mutiny, the start of the SPLA war, which was sparked up in Bor, when you attributed it to the, to, 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 to the cry for redivision, which the Equatorians in 81-82 took up and asked for the South Sudan to be uh, decentralized so that those from Greater Upper Nile, Greater Bahr el-Ghazal, Greater Equatorial remain where they are. When they asked for this, it coincided with that then Nimeri government, he already had drawn up plans to abrogate the Addis Ababa peace agreement that brought peace between, uh, in South Sudan between 1972 and 1982. It was, one of the moves was the, 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 the garrison in Bor was meant mainly, not exclusively, but mainly by elements drawn from the South Sudanese Anyanya movement. And this unit, the only force that had sizable Southern element was to be moved and disarmed to the North. So the rebellion was against Northern mechanisms rather than a reaction to to, 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 the, to, to the move for, for, for decentralization, further decentralization. Again, on the issue of languages, I don't know where you are, you are, you are traveling in South Sudan. During the war, practically everybody now speaks what we call Juba Arabic. This has unified everybody. Now I can go to any part of South Sudan and speak Juba Arabic, and I'm here. Now you're seeing people are speaking their tribal languages. Now I think I can easily communicate with the Kuku, with the Ebari, with the Nuer, with the Emondare in the Dinka language, in, in the Juba Arabic. I think there are people here who testify to this. That is the justification of my saying some of the things you are wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on the issue of the language, on the issue of uh, uh, the Bor mutiny, and on the issue of the cattle wrestling uh, problems. We don't like the cattle wrestling that results in destruction that results in instability. We do not like it, but it's not tribal. Thank you very much. Actually, I, I gave a talk about this in Juba a, a couple of years ago, and I did suggest that um, the way forward would be to bomb the cattle camps and kill the cattle, and that would... Um, but um, some of your colleagues in government didn't think it was a good idea. It is, of course, what the British did. I mean, because the last British... People don't often forget this, but the last British military campaign in Africa was against the Nur in, in Sudan, and they used biplanes to bomb the cattle in the cattle camps. Yes, please, a question up there. Please say who you are. Yeah, hi, my name is Tariq Mohammed. I'm uh, Sudanese. I would also count myself as a southerner in a, in a way. Um, I think it's a bit ironic, really, that southern Sudan is a net importer of food. So just bringing the question back to the why is agriculture not part of the successes that you've mentioned? Why hasn't there been a focus on mass employment through some successes? Um, uh, activities in southern Sudan throughout the CPA period and 
even after secession, mm. when it's quite obvious that this is something that should be really a priority, that has abundant water resources, abundant fertile land, and obviously a move away in, ter in terms of diversification, a move away from oil. Thank you. Are there any other questions about this particular issue related to the economy, the importation of oil? Yes, sir, there. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. My name is Feng Xue from China Business News. My question is, uh, is also about uh, the economic issue of South Sudan. Uh, as an economic advisor to, uh, to your government, uh, do, you, uh, do, do you prepare to, to diversify the revenue income of uh, your government apart from uh, the, the oil? Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Maybe on this side here. Yes, uh, over there. On the economy, is that right? Yeah. Uh, my name is uh, Paul Mortat. I'm a Sudanese. I'm a South Sudanese, sorry. Uh, my question is related to, to what the gentleman asked about Google Kasha. The, 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 the speaker, his excellency, said that uh, there's no private sector in South Sudan. Uh, but what we are hearing is that the agriculture schemes are being uh, left to the private sector. Uh, if there's no private sector in South Sudan, how are we going to develop agriculture if their government is like not doing anything but not getting involved? It's like the, all, the, all the, the production in the agriculture are left to private sector, which doesn't exist. So can you just explain to us what's the plan for, for agriculture in the country? Thanks. Okay, that's great. One more on the economy. Yes, this lady here. My name's Adele Thackeray. I work in finance. Um, in it, oil and gas um, is obviously very interesting, but mining too. I mean, you're a very prospective country. I understand you've issued at least one gold mining license in the past year. Do you have plans to develop that sector? Okay, I think that's enough for the, for the time being. There are two rather interesting questions on, on agriculture. As, but an, as, a, an aspect of the agriculture one that I'm sure people would also be interested in is to do with the investment coming into South Sudan with respect to agriculture, notably from China, and what, what's that going to mean? Then the diversity issue um, and the issue of other, other, mining, other mine products. Uh, thank you very much. The issue of the non-performing agricultural sector could as well be extended to many other aspects of the economy. I alluded to earlier on. But with a particular reference to agriculture, yes, up to 90% of the South Sudanese people derive their livelihoods from the agricultural sector, one type or the other, animal-related or arable agriculture. It is destined to be the leading sector based on the growth strategy that has come out. But it has not gained that prominence for the simple practical reason. How do you access the agricultural fields when the roads are mined, when the roads do not exist. That is why it is very, very important in the prioritization of government programs, the issue of creating a, 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 a viable road network to promote expansion in agriculture is extremely crucial. 
you go to the equatorial green belt where most of the arable agriculture is supposed to be practiced a family cannot put a field even half of this very fertile to produce cabbages you can only plant so much to the extent that your family can consume because extra will go nowhere due to, to lack of market lack of accessibility how do you do that in the face of insecurity that's why the security sector had to be prioritized so that it can create uh, physical security to guarantee economic security in our context it is the agricultural sector that will tackle it the entire interim period was characterized by a high degree of uncertainty would the vital aspects of the peace agreement be implemented would the referendum itself be conducted and if you conducted, would the results be received peacefully? Would South Sudan go its way or revert to serious war? Those were the, that, that was the, those were the circumstances under which the leadership uh, prevailed. Yes, on hindsight, maybe even this year when we shut down oil production and we went into, into, into austerity measures uh, in, our, in, in our economy, two, three, four years, hence our own children will consider this year as, 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 as they will not know what happened from January up to now. They will count it just uh, like any other as, as, as a failure. So it's not only the agricultural sector that uh, suffered, but many other sectors also did. That's why we are saying it is a very much welcome move what happened in Addis Ababa last week. So that the attention of the leadership will it now be focused on growth in the economy led by the agricultural sector. I think this one also answers uh, the other issue of diversification. I mentioned earlier on in my talk the issue of, uh, yeah, somebody mentioned the, yeah, the issue of diversification of the economy, our over-reliance on one commodity. We are very uncomfortable about it. We need to diversify, uh, again, the the first choice is the agricultural sector. There is this uh, thing you get in the media of huge chunks of land in South Sudan having been parceled out to the private sector. I live in South Sudan. I move all over. I have not seen a single field given to a private sector. I want somebody, I challenge anybody to say it is in such a place. Who got a piece of land when for agricultural development? I know the potential investors have been coming, making surveys and so on, talking to the leadership. But actual puzzling, of course, we have this problem of, 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 of uh, property rights, which are very much bedeviling the land issue. So who gave out land and to who for investment purposes? This has not happened. I mean it. Let somebody challenge and tell me that in countries, in counties, so and so, so much land has been given out to investors, so and so. It has not happened. Um, uh, yeah, I still maintain that the private sector is nascent in terms of in, in South Sudan. And we are, we, are, we, are, we are relying on the private sector to be the growth 
to be the engine of growth. But it is in a very, very, very nascent stage. That's why I more or less said it doesn't exist. We need to grow it, and without it, we cannot do very much. The government cannot be relied upon to create jobs for, for, for the population. It is the private sector. That is a sector we have identified to pay serious attention to in order to create uh, jobs and, and so on. Uh, other than oil, we have already come up with a, a, a draft legislation to regulate mining in other areas like gold, like uh, copper, like iron. Uh, the law is already done. I think Parliament is on recess. When they come, it's going to be uh, uh, processed into law to regulate mining in that sector. The, the, the petroleum law is already out. It is operational. I think, uh, those are... What about the issue of Chinese investment? There's been lots of rumors about the Chinese government buying up parts of South Sudan. and That's all nonsense. I've not seen it. You've not seen it. I've not seen it. Okay. They were there before South Sudan became independent yeah. through the oil sector, and we are continuing to honor our relationship with the Chinese firms in the oil sector. Nothing Thank else. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, hi, my name is Pete D'Souza. Um, I wanted to ask you if your economist's hat on. Um, what do you think of the argument about the, the South Sudanese exchange rates? Is, is the, obviously there's an official rate that's around three and a, and a sort of parallel or black market rate around five. Is, is the, do you buy into the, the argument that the uh, official rate is being kept low and obviously the, the country's national uh, savings are being sold off at this, at this rate uh, to show strength and to keep uh, keep domestic prices down, or does, if you don't think that argument stacks up, do you think the alternative reason is, is corruption? And if you believe the latter, um, do you think it's viable to ask donors to put more money into South Sudan at this official rate if they also believe that there's some corruption going on in that exchange rate? Sir, please penetrate. Is it a related question? Someone got a related question? No, I, th I think we'll take that one independently because it uh, okay, yeah. speaks to your, your expertise. Mm. This is also a pertinent question. Um, the official exchange rate is fixed, as you put it, yes, close to three. It's actually 2.95. And that rate was more or less operating well before the shutdown in oil prices. And when we did that, we knew exactly what was going to happen to inflation, what was going to happen to the supply side of the economy, what was going to happen to the exchange rate. We knew exactly. And all these three things suffered as our reserves that we had uh, saved began to dwindle. These things suffered. Uh, speculation set in. Uh, like you put it, the exchange rate went from three at one week to reach 5.7. Now, as we speak, it is 4.1, the parallel exchange rate. We have maintained the official rate at 2.95, almost three. There was a lot of pressure to adjust 
the official rate to the market rate. We had to think very hard as to whether to respond or not. Whatever level we went, if we did, meant it would have to be backed up with some foreign reserves. When it went to four, and we were at 2.95, if we went to three or 3.5 or something like that, it meant we, need, we needed to release equivalent or corresponding dollars into the market in order to maintain that position. And let's not forget the element of uh, speculation. If also we went to that level trying to chase the market rate by now we have reached maybe 10 or more. But thanks to the steadfastness of our central bank guys, just around August, uh, before uh, the Islamic world went to, into, 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 into the holy, one of, the holy month of Ramadan, which suspended the talks. But there was a breakthrough in the oil negotiations. The announcement of the breakthrough reduced the black market exchange rate dramatically. That means a good deal of it was speculative. We got some funding in form of uh, uh, about $100, $100 million. We devoted this to three commodities, fuel, food, and cement. Most of the big actors in the, in the market had access to this money. The exchange rate again fell from 4.7 to 4.3. I, the, 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 the good news from Addis, from Addis found me here. I do not know what it is. On the other hand, with dwindling foreign reserves, if we followed the market, the black market exchange rate, in the absence of foreign reserves to back our position, by now, believe me, the exchange rate would have gone again to the roof. So. This rumor about uh, people profiting from the parallel exchange rate it ended up as a rumor. Because now there is nothing to release in order to benefit from the kind of uh, uh, rent that you, you are implying. Thanks. Let's take a few questions now. Yes, sir. In the middle there. Um, my name is uh, John Nichols, and I've recently done a bit of coordinating different uh, international NGOs working on humanitarian issues in both Sudan and South Sudan. Um, and I wondered, um, when you mentioned about the private sector and uh, viewing that as the sort of engine of growth going forward, I, I wondered, are you referring to the, a sort of de the, the development of a domestic private sector of, of South Sudanese groups, organizations, companies, and so on, or is it going to be... Uh, quite heavily reliant on, on foreign companies coming into the country because I think that potentially has an implication in terms of providing sustainable development and having the participation of South Sudanese in, um, you know, having a stake in, in their economy and their society. Just, and just related to that, I just wondered what you thought about um, the different work that different NGOs are doing, particularly on perhaps education and healthcare um, uh, areas of the economy. And, and do you perhaps worry that there may be 
develop an, an, a bit of an over-reliance on, on some of these um, NGOs. It just made, made me think about this when you talked about the army and the fact that there are too, perhaps too many, many people in the army. And it, obviously, it, for them to leave the army, there needs to be another form of uh, income and employment for them. Do you, do you have any strategy in the government for working with those NGOs to provide more employment, alternative forms of employment for for South Sudanese people. So it's a bit, bit of a combined question about domestic versus uh, sort of international foreign organizations and companies. Okay, thanks. Uh, another question up there, yes? There's two there, let's have both of them. Thank you, uh, my name is Elisa Freiburg. I'm a human rights uh, public international law student. And I would like to ask a question combination of agriculture and development. Um, first of all, um, which uh, or what would you say? What is the um, priority of um, food security, especially with regard to the right to food in South Sudan right now? And the second part of the question, because you said that, of course, South Sudan tries to learn out of its own mistakes and probably also of the mistakes of its neighbor, uh, neighbor countries. Um, what would you consider the best uh, strategies to achieve food security? Thank you. My name is Daniel Watson from the University of Sussex. And I've got a comment and a question. Um, so firstly, I'd like to go back to some of your central themes in your talk. In particular, attention, I think, that exists between your conviction that South Sudan is starting from scratch uh, and your theme of balancing short and long-term needs. I think the expression starting from scratch, uh, in effect, writes out significant portions of history which are still relevant to South Sudan. Um, so in addition to short and long-term challenges, you also have unresolved challenges. I'd like to illustrate that through my question, which is about militia groups and demobilizing them. Um, so there is a, a like, significant presence of militia groups throughout South Sudan, um, many of which were excluded from the Comprehensive Peace Agreement and have subsequently been awkwardly integrated into the army and are then expected to demobilize in order to keep the cost down of the army. So basically there are two aspects to that. There's an economic aspect that you need to get rid of these militia groups in order to keep the army at an affordable rate and a political issue that you need to resolve the unresolved grievances of these militia groups. So what do you plan on doing about these specialists in violence and resolving their grievances? And that's a wide range of things. I think you can resolve all those questions. <laughs> You've gone a long way. Mm. Yeah, should we take those ones with the group? Uh, the NGOs versus the private sector. Um, there is, of course, this tendency. Uh, we have already noticed it in South Sudan that there is a tension between the NGO sector and the private sector. They tend to see themselves as competitors. That has already come to the fore and we need to, to handle it carefully. We are still an NGO dependent uh, system and we need to, 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 to maintain them. But we do not want the NGO community to stifle our efforts at growing the private sector. 
we need to strike a balance. It seems the two do not appear to be compatible with each other. Now, when I talk about the private sector, I mean actually investment. And investment we welcome from anywhere, from local investors as well as from foreign investors. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of uh, foreigners, mainly from our neighbors, who are investing heavily in, in, in South Sudan. And it, they are doing a very fantastic, wonderful job. So we, we are encouraging uh, investment per se to help grow the economy, to help create jobs, to help Southerners learn how those kind of things are done, to take on board the South Sudanese in order for them also to, to participate in the process of uh, creating wealth. So that is why we, 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 we very much talk in terms of investment, uh, that it must be done as a matter of national uh, uh, necessity. The agricultural sector, again, I will emphasize what I said earlier on, is extremely important, and we cannot sensibly talk about growth in the economy or development per se without paying attention to the agricultural sector. Food security, in our definition in South Sudan, starts from the homestead level. If we can go back to the days of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, where South Sudan never used to import anything from anybody, but everybody had sufficient food to last them from January to December, the starting point is to go there. Uh, get away from this over-dependence uh, from oil. So food security starts from the homestead level, extending to the rural areas producing surplus in order to serve the urban areas. And then thereafter, you can talk of in, in, uh, export or anything like that. So to us, food security means, uh, one, not being able to, rather, being able to substitute the vegetables, and now we are importing from our neighbors, vegetables that can easily be grown in South Sudan, but cannot be done given our nascent or absent road network. Yeah, the, the, the militia groups, I think uh, they are more or less all absorbed, except for somebody called David Yaweao, who has just been implanted into the middle of Yongole to, to, to create problems. All those who have taken up uh, the offer of amnesty by our president, they are all absorbed. And we believe it's cheaper to keep them uh, as sons and daughters of South Sudan in the armed forces than for them to be at large and you exchange uh, fire with each other. So that, except for Yaweao and whoever is not yet identified, the rest are all absorbed as a, as a first step. Then when we go to the DDR program, we will do it together with them. The ideas and so on of, of how to go about it will be generated together with them. So there are not many uh, militias that are not uh, actively against the government, but they are sitting somewhere else and not engaged. They are all absorbed. So we don't have militia groupings that are just sitting without being engaged. Everybody is taken on board. I think also underlying that question was the idea that South Sudan doesn't start from scratch. There is a history there that 
can't be escaped from. It comes back, I suppose, to some of the points I was making earlier <laughs> about divisions within the South. But let's put it in a slightly different way. Mm. The South Sudan had a period of, as you said yourself, relative calm um, after the Addis Ababa agreement, almost a decade. What was learned through that experience, which can be applied now to uh, you know, um, secure long-term success? One is <coughs> uh, depending on revenue, real revenue from taxes. This time around, when the peace agreement, uh, the, the CPA, came around, unfortunately, it came at a time when oil was already flowing and revenue was flowing from oil. So much so that the, the other types of revenue, we began calling them non-oil, as if oil revenue is the, the, the thing. And any other one is non-oil. We want to begin defining tax revenue positively so that oil revenue becomes a, a, a a complementary support to tax revenue because it is tax revenue that makes a country and economy strong. So um, if there's any learning to, to, to learn from the 72 to 82 period, it was that uh, from two secondary schools left by the British in 1956, in that period of 10 years, the number of secondary schools went to 30. The school enrollment rate, where they used to admit uh, something like 80 to secondary schools per annum, elitist, went to over 1,000. So with the tax revenue, the competence and the capacity had already reached a level where it was possible to, 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 to make investments and to create those kinds of infrastructure. We long to go back to those days so that oil plays a secondary role rather than the primary role. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. There are some questions over here. Let me, let me take them. Down. I would like just to take you back to what you said in the beginning about building a new state and you talked about the challenges that facing the new state. I saw that you will also talk or highlight the issue of democracy and the democratic process within the new state. If there is any plan for you know, elections, you know, giving a chance for more politicians to join the current <coughs> government on taking the decision of building the new state. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Yes, it was so let's take all three. Why not? Can't discriminate. I'm Tom Law, and I work for Sudan Tribune. So I guess I'm one of the uh, people who have been writing these. Uh, um, not not just about success in South Sudan. And for that, I apologise. Um, regarding the um, the World Bank report that we published, I'm sure you saw it earlier this year, and it wasn't particularly. Um, it, it didn't. It described the competence at the top of the the government in terms of understanding economics, saying a very low capacity. And I was wondering um, if you feel that's the case, and if all the talk about building a new pipeline 
out to Kenya. Was that just a um, now the new audience is signed? Was that was that actually seriously considered, or was that just part of the negotiation process? And in terms of tackling um, corruption head on, I was just wondering um, whether or not you think that the 70 top um, officials who were written to by President Salva Kiir regarding corruption, asking to return money, do you think they should publicly declare who they are? And obviously, following that, did you get a letter by any chance? My name's Jill Lusk. I'm a journalist specialising in the two Sudans. Um, I'd like that's a related question, really, in terms of building up. Um, government and state institutions in, and services in South Sudan. Would you like to comment on the tension between the political need to keep everybody in the tent, um, to bring in people from different ethnicities and particularly different political parties, different political groups, people who may have been perceived as enemies and indeed from the militias you mentioned as being absorbed, and the need to have uh, the greatest professional capacity I mean, a lot of South Sudanese tell me they're having trouble getting jobs when they've worked or studied abroad during the war. They're not considered quite part of the new dispensation. Uh, so what did you do in the war is the big question, understandably in many ways, of course, and also to tackle the issue of corruption, which you drew attention to yourself. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We're sort of moving towards the end, so I saw a couple of questions here. Can I take those as well? And then we'll have this as the last round. There's one up at the top, and there's... Not here in the white shirt. Hi there, um, I'm Agnes Tay, and just really broadly, um, what do you expect of um, the U.S. role, America's role in um, in this issue? Okay, thanks. Good short question. Here. Yes, um, I'm Roman from UCL. My question w would be relating to the cattle wrestling. How uh, does the uh, South Sudanese government tend uh, to tackle this question? Because apparently security is a priority for the government and this cataracting seems to cause a lot of instability in South Sudan especially given the situation at the beginning of this year so does the South Sudanese have a strategy to try to contain this let's uh, communal violence over the cattle? Okay, thanks very much. I think this is your, your last go answering everybody's concerns. <laughs> I did mention <coughs> that the issue of good governance based on democratic practices is any aspect that would be attributed to nation building, to state building. One, would, one could be forgiven if they were to say if democracy and democratic practices prevail there is a nation that one would be in place um, currently I think there are over 20 political parties fully recognized in South Sudan collectively they have come together they have formed the political parties uh, forum or commission a political parties law has been uh, put in place and any election commission 
has been appointed and sworn in. Um, this, I believe, are democratic practices. These are indicators of democratic practices. Uh, the government that has been put together, put in place following independence, <coughs> of course we have not been able to conduct elections, uh, was a government of consensus. It reflected not only these political parties, but also as much as possible some kind of regional and ethnic balance. We have, uh, I think, over 100 ethnic groups. I don't think it will really make sense to bring everybody or a person from each of these communities and make them a minister and a divisor or whatever it is. It takes time. So this, uh, this is our way of uh, uh, handling, uh, creating fairness in government. The World Bank report, uh, before it went into your hands, I, I saw it, I discussed it, and it was supposed to be, it, it's mainly, as you will agree with me, it was mainly based on the concerns of the international community on how South Sudan was going to survive in the face of uh, suspending uh, oil production and therefore the flow of money to itself. It was. Uh, meant to provide a, a serious appreciation by the leadership of what it meant to shut down oil prices and to deny yourself the flow of revenue. Uh, yeah, not only the 75 names, and I think everybody else who is caught doing uh, corrupt practices should be not only identified but prosecuted. I did not get one of those letters. <laughs> and many, many of those who got are openly revealing themselves that I got, I need to be taken to court. Many are asking to be taken to court to prove their innocence or to be proved guilty. So I think it's not a big issue, it's not a big deal, uh, and I don't think. Uh, it's only these 75. I think more need to be identified rather than... But I mean, concentrating on these 75 is actually shielding. It's shielding the others who may have been, particularly everybody. What does it take? Corrupt practices in a government setting reflect weak institutions, reflect weak uh, fiduciary practices, reflects uh, as in the case now, poor procurement uh, practices. Now, the procurement of government, the procurement of goods, works, and services by the government, these, things, these goods are, are, are supplied by the private sector. None of the 75 is from the private sector. What do you do with them? The private sector who got involved in this, they also need to be identified. Not just government officials who may have been thrown something here and there in order to facilitate a big business person. So those people also need to be identified. Big and small. So I think when I talked of the war on corruption being fought hate on, 
I, I mean, I, I meant that kind of, of thing. The issue of political inclusiveness, um, particularly our diaspora elements, uh, going to Juba, going to South Sudan, and, 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 and not getting jobs, I think that is to be expected. Currently, South Sudan, on its payrolls, employs up to 400,000. 400,000 in our case is too large. The army, the police, the organized forces, the civil servants across uh, national competences, national, state, county, and all this, 400,000. That is too much. But the government cannot be relied upon to be the source of employment. That's why we are saying the private sector should be facilitated to grow because that's where employment is. If today you have 100 firms employing an average of 50, that is already 5,000. You multiply that, you get more. So the, the issue is not really uh, getting our diaspora or even those graduating from our universities, local universities, being scooped up by the government every time they graduate. We need to find the avenue for their employment. So I think employment at the end of the day will uh, very much uh, depend on, on, on growth in the economy, which can only come about through investment uh, in the private sector. The USA is doing a lot in South Sudan, politically and diplomatically, as well as uh, tangibly. The only paved way road in South Sudan worthy of talking about has been created by the United States of America, opening our, 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 our trade routes with the Uganda from Juba up to the border. Uh, it's, a, it's a concrete road comparable to any I've seen here and elsewhere. So they are, they are doing quite a lot. In, practically, they are involved in every sector. And I think they, are, they, they assure us that they will continue with us. The issue of cattle wrestling is actually uh, is a long, 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 long rooted uh, practice. It, it was there before the British went to Sudan. And it has continued. It only got worse. In those days, cattle theft was done using sticks, clubs, spears, and bows. Now it's AK-47 talking. That's why the whole thing has become ugly and it needs to be done. That is why South Sudan has deployed a sizable number of its army in Jongole to subdue. I think I understand they have collected over 15,000 firearms and the struggle is still continuing. Uh, in Lakes State, a good deal have been collected. Uh, Madam uh, Nyandeng of Warap is doing the collection. In Eastern Equatoria, they are collecting so we want to that kind of thing to, to, to continue. Collection and then much more than collecting the arms, uh, there are a lot of groups that are working to sensitize, to sensitize the, the communities against this kind of, of practices. So this, the, government, the government is involved in so many fronts. Uh, the military aspect of it as well as the, the, the persuasion aspect of it to get rid of this practice. What about killing the cattle? Uh, that one I think we'll have to negotiate with. <laughs> <laughs> it does work. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, I'd like to thank you, you know, very much indeed for um, what you've shared with us today. It's been um, immensely interesting. You've been very honest with us on, on occasions about some of the difficulties that your government's confronting. I think you can see by the, the turnout in this room and then an event before the start of term how much interest and um, uh, sympathy there is for, for South Sudan and how much um, you know, we look forward to seeing you in a couple of years' time, maybe telling us about how things have, have moved on and, um, you know, and how in, in a more positive direction. But at least for today, thank you very much for coming to talk to us.